There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello from Canberra, I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and it's my great pleasure to welcome to the barbecue Assistant Professor Alexandra Phelan from the Centre for Global Health, Science and Security at Georgetown University Medical Centre and she is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Centre as well. Her research focuses on law in areas such as global health, human rights and international environmental law and very topically on emerging infectious diseases, climate change, exposure to pathogens, benefits sharing and global health justice. And Professor Phelan comes to us from the US, which as we all know is a world leader on how to comprehensively botch the response to a global pandemic. Alex, welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. Thank you so much for having me. Now, as well as being named in last year's Australian Financial Review 100 Most Influential Women, you're a legal and policy consultant for international organisations, including the WHO, as I understand it. And you talk to these global organisations on things like governance, law issues relating to international law and infectious diseases. This includes things like Zika, mm-hmm. Ebola, influenza and HIV AIDS. So can I start really there, if, if that's okay, just talking about this international aspect. Um, there's obviously a fair bit going on at the moment with, you know, the talk about China in Australia. It's a very hot topic because the Morrison government has led this campaign to have a, a full independent inquiry in China as to how the virus started and spread. Is this reasonable at law as you understand it? So I think that the starting point is to think about what is the international legal regime that the World Health Organization and states operate within when it comes to emerging infectious disease outbreaks like um, COVID-19. And back in 2005, uh, following the first SARS uh, outbreak, the um, member states and the World Health Organization came together and revised a piece of international law called the International Health Regulations. And in it, it was, it was a fairly progressive document in that it allowed, gave the WHO a range of new powers, like the ability to declare a public health emergency of international concern, which, you know, in many respects, it can be seen as calling out a country for failing to control an outbreak, although the, the goal was that that wouldn't be how it was perceived. It gave the WHO the power to request information from states about if they heard about an outbreak, um, which again is a fairly uh, progressive seeding of sovereignty when you think about international law and, and, and states being sovereign about what's going on within their within their borders. 
There are a range of sort of other powers like WHO being able to call out countries that don't follow recommendations during a public health emergency of international concern. And this was kind of the balance between protecting global public health um, and uh, control over domestic matters that countries around the world agreed to. And in fact, Australia was a leading negotiator in the revision of these international health regulations, the IHR. Um, and so that's been the legal framework that we've operated in for the last you know, 15 years. Uh, following the West Africa Ebola outbreak, there were six or seven major reviews of the WHO and of the IHR, of this law, um, and a number of recommendations, and none of which have actually been implemented. You know, there was a very, there's a big, there's been a hesitancy to touch this law, this worry that, you know, we finally had global agreement on controlling infectious disease outbreaks and people were worried that by touching the law it would, would unravel it. And I think this out, this, this pandemic has demonstrated that the, the failure to really relook at that law has um, meant that the norms of international cooperation um, have that underpin it have really started to fade, and and we're seeing the consequences of that with these particular calls from Australia, from the US, um, and also from the early stages of the outbreak in in China. So I think there are you know there are a couple of aspects to what Australia has been proposing. You know the first is a, a review of the WHO. Um, it's um, its dynamics with China in the first month and a half in particular, so the the question of whether to call this public health emergency. Um, You know, and I think that that is consistent with what we would expect, that that sort of review uh, is what we saw with Ebola. And I think there there are some legitimate questions um, about the way uh, deference was given to the data coming out of China. The challenge is, is Australia, along with every other 190 or the all 196 state parties to this international treaty um, made it quite clear of what the limits of WHO's power would be. And at the end of the day, um, WHO is constrained by the rules that states, including Australia, set. Um, and keeping China engaged and talking um, was a was a priority at that point in time. Um, and there there weren't any powers to just send send a team in. And eventually, China and WHO actually had a team go in. So. I think there's sort of there's a reality of the, the laws were already kind of set and agreed to by countries, including Australia. So expecting WHO to go, you know, above its own powers and authorities is kind of misplaced. But maybe the international community wants to revise that and reconsider that. But the reality is, is any laws or any changes that are imposed for China will equally be imposed on Australia, and where the countries will willingly accept that level of oversight from an international institution. Um, you know, I think is 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 less likely to be a, a reality. So the other um, the other proposal that Australia's put forward is this idea of um, investigators or inspectors who would go into a country to investigate a potential outbreak, and you know that's modelled very much on other fields of international law, like the um, the weapons conventions, the biological weapons convention, and the chemicals weapons weapons convention that have um, different types of investigatory powers through the United Nations Secretary General or through the you know a particular office set up under the treaty um, and even in that field where weapons inspections have been um, seen as an important part of accountability and enforcement of, of international prohibitions against weapons. Um, they've not been without controversy, you know, particularly um, the way in which investigations are conducted because it is a significant um, 
you know, it's a significant step to have an international body come into a country and do inspections. Um, and I think some of my concerns about if we were to roll that into the um, health arena, into, into global health arena, is it's taking a very sort of punitive um, blame and accountability process that um, or, or mechanism that is a bit of an anathema to global public health. Um, what the international health regulations are based on is this idea that countries will notify um, very rapidly within 24 to 48 hours of detecting an event that could pose a threat to global public health. And that notification obligation is really built on trust, not just between countries and the WHO, but within a country and public health systems within a country. And the worry is, is if you start to impose what is more of a, a punitive and blame or more sort of a criminal sanction style of approach of investigations, you actually encourage countries to potentially start to, to try and deal with the matter before it goes out, before it comes out of the country. And we know that that actually doesn't really work. Um, and so it's kind of contrary to all that we know about this rapid reporting and rapid response to outbreaks. Um, and so the, the investigations proposal I, I don't think is necessarily the, the strongest. You know, we did have a WHO team eventually go in on the ground in China and then also to, to, um, to Italy as well as the outbreak was, as, was spreading. I think there are other lessons from, say, the Biological Weapons Convention that we can learn. Um, the, the primary one is... Um, under the Biological Weapons Convention, countries come together at regular intervals to reassess any technological developments and to really reinforce the norms about the prohibition on biological weapons. I think that we could take those lessons for global public health, for naturally occurring outbreaks or, or um, non uh, non biological weapons outbreaks like this one, you know, naturally an outbreak where you've had a zoonotic spillover and spread, um, and have countries coming together at regular intervals to reassess whether the international law that we have is appropriate to update it for technological advances and changes in sort of the global threats around the world, including things like climate change and the impact that it is having on emerging infectious diseases. But also just to simply get together and reinforce the norms, remind countries that it is critical to rapidly notify the WHO and other countries of outbreaks, that they must share um, public health information, genetic sequence data and samples of any outbreaks, which, you know, the latter two aren't really legal obligations at the moment. But there are there is scope for for that sort of reinforcing of the international norms that I think um, got lost uh, in a lot of the blame game that happened post West Africa. Um, and you know I wouldn't want to see us get into a loop where we're in a, in a in a spiral of trying to find blame and accountability that doesn't actually help move us forward in a productive way that protects global public health. That's really fascinating. There's so much in what you've just said. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea that the, um, uh, the idea of, um, sending inspectors, it sounds good. Um, and, and the same with a kind of a, I suppose this also applies to a, a forced after the fact, uh, independent inquiry, if such a thing were even viable. Um, and that is, it sounds good up front, but there are, as you say, in, in, in the, in the health space, um, there are reasons why you wouldn't do that because it does so critically rely on early detection, self-reporting, uh, openness and communication, and you don't want to build yeah, in precisely. disincentives to that in the system. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, um, 
I think in this uh, and, and, and been fascinating for all of us to watch has been the performance of the WHO. Um, the, you know, there is uh, uh, quite a lot of criticism, obviously, in the US about the WHO. And in Australia, Scott Morrison made a point of getting out ahead of the WHO in terms of declaring the novel coronavirus a, a pandemic of global potential. Um, is it is it your assessment that the WHO was hamstrung by by politics. I mean, there was an argument being made uh, quite early on in this process that um, that the US had had undue influence on the WHO going way back into the HIV AIDS era uh, and had been leaning on the WHO not to declare that a pandemic in the, in the way that, uh, that that it eventually was regarded uh, and uh, that uh, similarly China was having undue influence on the WHO this time slowing down its uh, declaration of this global pandemic. Are those criticisms valid in, in your view? So I think there's two elements here. And the first is this particular outbreak. And then the second is the broader dynamics of, of the WHO and how, how, how it interacts with member states. And on the first, and something that seems to have been forgotten, I think it's... it's um, uh, unsurprising because we're seeing the shifting of, of blame that's occurring, particularly the US towards the WHO, is on the 30th of January this year, WHO Director General Tedros declared this a public health emergency of international concern. That is the highest level of alert that the WHO has under international law. And when making that declaration for, the, the acronym is AFIC, when making that declaration for AFIC, um, Tedros said, this is an alert for all, this is not about blaming China or saying that China hasn't contained it. This is an alert for the global community that this, this novel coronavirus poses a significant threat to global public health and everyone should be getting ready right now. And now that was back on the 30th of January and that was the third time that the emergency committee, a group of experts under the IHR had actually met. So, I mean, and a, a week before, you know, was the first meeting. Um, and so that's a pretty rapid turnaround from 31 December when uh, this was first uh, first uh, reported in, in the media. Um, so, you know, I think that declaration actually happened really quickly um, and quite rapidly. And, and in mid-January, the, there were experts, including myself, who were saying that it should have been declared at that first meeting. But, you know, within seven days it was declared. Now, that's very different to a pandemic declaration. But it's really important to note that there is no such legal declaration right. of a pandemic. That doesn't exist under the IHR. A pandemic is simply, uh, it's simply a descriptive term for saying that the, that the outbreak has spread globally. So the warning that it was going to become a, a risk globally happened back in January and countries chose not to listen. Um, but when once it be, had spread globally, you know, the descriptor was applied by WHO. Um, you know, I do think at the time, and I'm, I'm not backwards in in coming in criticizing certain parts of the WHO's operation. I did say, it, you know, in sort of mid February, I think if they delay using the word pandemic, even though there's no legal declaration to do, there is a risk that it will become the the sort of point of fight and debate. Um, and unfortunately, that's kind of what happened. I think there was just a hesitancy to use the word to describe what was happening. There's no doubt that um, that's the case because, sorry to interrupt, but uh, yeah. there's no doubt that's the case because there was quite a lot of debate in in, um, yes. in the kind of non-expert broader media about why the WHO was refusing yeah. to use this term. Uh, and it was seen as a... Um, as a 
a deliberate decision by the you know the senior most global health body uh, based on mm. expert evidence, and therefore um, was being seen by governments as a reason not to. You were talking before about uh, some governments didn't listen to that earlier declaration on the 30th of January. Well, it was seen by governments uh, who weren't inclined to act when inclined to get out in the front foot uh, that uh, the WHO hadn't gone to the sort of, uh, you know, to, to the full extent that it could in terms of warnings about the danger of this pathogen. Yeah, and I think what it demonstrates, and this happens all the time with communicating um, legal issues or expert issues, um, that there is a disconnect between uh, being correct and being uh, and responding to what people are asking for and what people are expecting. Right. So, w- the WHO only really has used pandemic as a term and, and phases of a pandemic for pandemic influenza. Um, you know, it's not a term that really was ever used for SARS officially. There was no sort of official declaration of that. Um, and there's no real sort of documentation about when to declare a pandemic. And so it really was this, this just purely technical descriptor of when a pathogen has spread typically to more than two continents is how we, we typically define a pandemic. It doesn't have to be globally. And, and the descriptor of where something is spread does not communicate risk. You know, you can have something that is very mild that is a pandemic because it is, you know, it is global. You know, and I think what the the risk was that because the definition appeared to have been met once we got it over a couple of continents, delaying risks undermining trust. Um, and I think it, it could have been a really significant signal to sort of shift that global response to recognising that this is a threat everywhere. Um, and I, I think it demonstrates, you know, a real challenge of risk communication and a real challenge of... Um, of the hesitancy that the WHO was showing um, in that I think at the time from the statements of Director Jen Tedros and other experts at the WHO is they were worried if they said it was a pandemic that it meant countries would try to, they would they would give up trying to engage in containment measures. They would stop trying to, you know, do the classic test um, quarantine or quarantine potential contacts and isolate, that they would they would sort of put their hands in there and say, oh, well, it's everywhere, we're not going to do anything. And so that real challenge of trying to communicate to governments, I think, uh, was really evident in this, this sort of discussion about pandemic. How did you see the declaration in the context of all of this of the US to uh, withhold its dues to the WHO? Um, you talked before about uh, how... What, what this uh, global health emergency has shown us about the state of international norms and the, and the structures. It, it all looks very precarious at the moment. We, we, you know, we've long been aware of, of rising nationalism, nativism, populism, these sorts of trends around the world. And we've, of course, all watched the, the Trump administration with a degree of, uh, you know, uh, horror and fascination. Um, but how, what has this done to this? What is this? emergency exposed about, I guess, the international machinery for dealing with this kind of crisis and where we're at at the moment. Yeah, so this really goes to that that sort of other point that you mentioned before about the influence of, of say, the US and potentially China in, in this outbreak. I mean, the, the withholding of that funding equated to at least 15% of the WHO's operating budget. And the WHO already operates with the US in arrears, um, not paying its, its dues. It already operates in a very con- budget 
constrained budget environment, the vast majority of WHO's actual funding is already earmarked and so it can't use it for, um, for as it sees ne- needs basis for, for public health needs, including for outbreaks like this. Um, and so this is where the political influence of the US historically has been you know, subject to a lot of criticism that the US, because they are such a significant funder, have been able to direct WHO priorities. The reality is there's a lot of donors who direct WHO priorities because of the vast majority of funds that aren't um, that aren't um, sort of the, the mandatory dues that that WHO chooses how to to allocate. Um, you know, I I think this this really does demonstrate the weakness of um, the the funding arrangements for the WHO. I think it demonstrates for the entire world how nationalism and populist approaches to global challenges, uh, because they don't approach global challenges, um, is a risk everywhere. So, you know, we often use the phrase, you know, an infectious disease outbreak anywhere is a public health threat everywhere. You know, I think we're starting to see the political and governance equivalent of an infectious disease outbreak anywhere, a a surge of nationalism, particularly in a country that has significant, uh, that has the ability to significantly impact not just the WHO, but the broader multilateral system, puts the entire globe uh, and all communities at risk um, when we need a global response. And I think that's going to become even more evident when slash if we have a vaccine because that that power play and that inequity is really going to manifest depending on where the vaccine is produced. You know, most global supply, the global vaccine development process is very interlinked globally, so it's hard for one country to just simply produce it. But the reality is wherever we see that vaccine being produced, we are likely to see, depending on the government, um, you know, government saying, well, we're not actually going to let this vaccine go out of our shores. We're going to use export controls or we're going to um, control the amount that does go out. Um, and when we look at some of the leading sort of nationalist governments around the world, they're also, you know, in at least two of them are in our vac- major vaccine producers. Um, and we're not going to have enough vaccine for everyone. We're not even going to have enough vaccine um, for our most essential workers, when we get that first that first development, and that's assuming we get a vaccine within you know within a reasonable time frame, so we're going to see the impacts of that sort of nationalist approach um, beyond just these sort of first five months of this outbreak. Um, and the only real solution to that is going to be global solidarity of some form through multilateral mechanisms, whether it's through the World Health Assembly, whether it's through the uh, through the UN, or through potentially we're seeing fragmenting into other um, other sort of regional or um, ally based um, based groups, you know, whether that be say G seven or NATO or, or other arrangements. So, where I think you know, uh, one month ago, I think the way it was being seen within the broader communities is this is a threat to multilateralism that we haven't seen since the beginnings of the post-World War II order. Um, And so I think, you know, I think it will be a very testing and trying period going forward. Let's take a quick break at that point and pick those arguments up again in just a moment. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. We were talking before the break about multilateral organisations, the machinery, the WHO, and how how it's been exposed and and uh, and I think weakened uh, by some of the posturing that's been going on by governments. Alex, I'm interested in your view about China specifically. Do you think China will be less inclined to be as uh, open as it was uh, early on? There, I mean, obviously there are criticisms about how China managed the very early da- earlier days of this outbreak, but uh, on the scientific side, there was also praise with how open microbiologists, virologists were with the gene sequencing and so forth, sharing that information. But uh, clearly there's a lot of umbrage around internationally about China at the moment. Do you think that's going to have a a negative effect on China's willingness to uh, cooperate uh, with uh, any sort of inquiry should it happen and and also uh, in its um, tendency to be open should there be future outbreaks of this virus or others? Yeah, so I think um, one of the phrases that, you know, I think typified the first sort of month or two of this outbreak when there was a lot of critique about about China and also a lot of praise about China and information sharing, which I think was probably a little bit misplaced, was, um, the, and it's important to differentiate, as you did, between the, the scientists and the people who, um, and members of the scientific community who have been very openly sharing and actively sharing and engaged versus you know, just it, just the wheels of bureaucracy, not necessarily any malintent, you know, or any any deliberate um, obfuscation. Just the the nature of the the Chinese bureaucracy between the province and the central provincial and central government levels. Um, but you know, when 2020 is not 2003. That is the sort of information of um, cover up that we saw during SARS that led to the revision of the international laws. Um, that's not what was happening in, in now in, in 2020. But at the same time, 2016 is not 2020. That is the China of four or five years ago that was um, pre Xi Jinping was uh, is very different to the China is now, particularly when it comes to openness of information sharing um, and, and journalism. Um, and I think we saw that play out in the way information has been constrained and, and particularly at the, the sort of provincial level. So what does that mean or what do I think that means going forward? I wouldn't be – I mean, there are two two clear pathways. I think we're seeing – we're going to see a bilateral tension emerge and that will be between China and the US and China and Australia, potentially China and Canada as Canada joins this, this critique. I think we might see – that flare up and um, and 
mean that there is a very strong unwillingness on China's part to respond directly to the sorts of um, actions and mechanisms that those parties are calling for, that Australia is calling for, or the US. At the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if we do see um, Xi Jinping and um, the, the Chinese government actively try to support WHO more, whether it be through fine, uh, financing or other support, and actually use the existing international legal mechanisms and try and reinforce them. You know, I think the real challenge will be how um, the sort of Taiwan question is handled and it seems as though that is starting to flare up in the lead up to the World Health Assembly, which is is next week. And I I do think it would be wrong to underestimate China's ability to to try and reinforce the global norms and the global system. Um, You know, I think whilst bilaterally there might be that tension, I, I still think that the engagement with WHO has worked in their favour, you know, that there is a multilateral system that they can uh, be a part of that the US is actively trying to withdraw from. And in that gap, you know, China is a perfect candidate to step in to some degree. So, you know, I think think it is a very fragmented six to 12 months ahead of us. You know, I I don't, partly because it's you know, we're so early in this pandemic um, when we're way too early to even be at the stage of doing after action reviews. We are not even at the second wave. You know, the the parallel would be we've, you know, we've broken for lunch on the first day of a test match. Um, <clears throat> we have a lot more cricket to play and I don't think that we're going to be in a position where those independent reviews are actively going to be able to be conducted because the world will still be trying to respond to this pandemic. And so what that means in 6, 12, 18 months' time um, is really hard to predict, but I, I don't think we're necessarily going to see China just just taking one path. I think we'll see two, you know, we'll see both paths, the supporting of the multilateral system and stepping into the gap um, that has been left by the US whilst also potentially, you know, dealing with these challenges bilaterally with with countries that are calling China out specifically. I love that uh, I'm talking to an academic based in Georgetown, Washington, and she uses a cricket analogy, a test cricket analogy to explain the the stage of play. I think that's absolutely brilliant. Um, And I suppose I should just mention at this point that obviously you're an Australian and you're also an ANU alumna, so... um, uh, it's good to be on an ANU podcast. I should have mentioned that in the in the introduction. Um, let's switch our focus from China to the US, uh, where you are. Um, clearly, President Trump, this is just what he ordered, really, all this focus on China, China's shortcomings, China, the origin of the virus. He's blaming China for all it's worth. Even as his country now leads the world uh, in um infections and and deaths. I mean, it's an utterly horrendous situation. In fact, John Berry, the former US ambassador to Australia, was on the AM program this morning as we record this. Uh, and he was, he was speaking from New York and he was making the point that if you tally up the all of the deaths from Antietam, the um, worst single day of the US Civil War, put them with the deaths at Pearl Harbor, Guadalcanal, Normandy, Iwo Jima, Iraq and Afghanistan, you still don't have the number of deaths that have occurred in New York alone, and it's three times. You have to multiply that by three to get to the number of deaths in the US. That puts the the, the scale of this tragedy in America in its context, and yet the president is more popular now than he has been at other times in his presidency. Um, 
and he's you know playing this China card for all it's worth. Uh, what's your assessment of that? I mean, it, uh, presumably uh, there's not much more one can say to that. You know, I think that whether we are talking globally or nationally, um, over the, you know, the US or the international arena, um, we are seeing a failure of governance in action. All of our assessments for core capacities, all of our assessments for whether a country was is able to respond to an emerging infectious disease like this, none of them quantified governance. None of them quantified what happens if you do have a nationalist leader, what happens if you have a leadership that refuses to engage in any form of, of, um, of leadership. We also had a really – that played out in a very unique way in the US in the way testing has, has become the battleground, that the testing didn't happen. Um, you know, we have a phrase in epidemiology of, you know, what gets measured gets done. Mm. And if you're not measuring it, you can't do anything, right, and you don't understand the burden that is occurring. Um, and, you know, it, it's no surprise given the failures of testing, which is such a basic, basic public health tool that it, it's not something that we even really factor into any of the simulations or models that we've run because, you know, doing, creating a diagnostic test is not the hurdle. Um, what the hurdle was here was governance uh, at that beginning. And once that got out of control, once the you know the US was so focused on implementing travel bans and it's a little bit like a game of whack-a-mole like you if you're only banning from one country you're already looking at data that is 2 weeks old it's already spread to other countries and so once it kind of got out of control here then the narrative very much shifted to this to the government the government taking their foot off completely um, and not following expert advice in 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 many in many ways um so it's unsurprising that we've seen because this is the this is as expected. It's what we've seen in every other crisis that the US has faced, including say you know when the hurricane Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, is um, a complete um, a complete lack of of, of governance and action um, and taking responsibility and shifting to a blame game. You know here it happens to be blaming China and the World Health Organization. The, the blaming uh, China seemed to have resonated particularly. Um, with with certain parts of the U.S. population, but also globally, um, and that has really been where his his you know attention has has as a result been. Well, it's all he's got now, isn't it? I mean, he the, 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 as the numbers stack up, and as you say, there's a long lag time in this virus for a start, but also this has been running now for a few months, and and uh, he can't undo the inaction that uh, you know that that uh, characterised the response in in the first weeks so all he's got now really is to find some other explanation for it other than his own moral turpitude which which actually is still a crime i think in the u.s it's on the on the statute books is it not I uh, well, I'm not, I'm not a um, not an expert on on moral turpitude, thank but thankfully, um, so I, I can't say if it's on the statute books. But I think that there is a reckoning that is quite whilst you know his popularity might be in in going up, which I you know I haven't looked at the polls, but there is a reckoning on the scale of you know we've got what eighty just under eighty um, eighty four thousand deaths in the United States to date. Um, we have over one point three nearly 1.4 million cases, um, there is a reality that the numbers um, 
can't get past. And I think that that will provide perhaps some of the strongest rhetoric in the next six months in the lead up to November and the, the next presidential election. The problem is... Yes, and you mentioned, you mentioned uh, you know, um, nationalism, nativism, mm. these forces. Of course, that's all on steroids as a result of it being an election year in the US as well. So, uh, you know, there's so much... So much um, extra energy in this debate that's uh, affected by politics and that's what Donald Trump is trying to to influence at the moment. You're right. I mean, the numbers don't lie, but um, if he can successfully convince enough people that uh, the, the US is a victim of, um, you know, this action by China, um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've seen those demonstrations of people out on the streets demanding their freedom back and people carrying guns yeah. in one of the state assemblies um, demanding their freedoms. Uh, it's it's just not a, a polity that I think Australians will ever completely understand. I, I very much agree. I think there are two other very concerning paths that can be taken from here in, in parallel to the China blame. The first has started to really rear its head in the last couple of days, and that is, you know, I said the numbers don't lie. Well, what if you stop counting? And that's what we're seeing at the moment. We're seeing the federal government, there are reports, um, still not quite clear, but there are reports and some whistleblowers out of the CDC being told that they're being told not to report mortality figures beyond those that are confirmed cases. Now, with an outbreak like this... Well, just on that, mm-hmm. just just on that, Alex, um, by, by way of example, I mean, this, there's a little bit of this going on in the UK, yes. which is, I mean, the US and the UK, they, they're two, two of Australia's closest allies uh, and they are the two leaders uh, in, the, in the world in terms of the deaths in this virus, viral outbreak now. Uh, and in the UK, they've just suddenly stopped producing international comparisons uh, they were being produced at the daily press conferences and as of, I think, yesterday, they're suddenly absent and the explanation is, oh, the numbers are unreliable. So I guess that uh, that's a pointer to what you're talking about could happen in the US as well. Yeah, I mean, and there's... there's- there's a there's one point that the numbers are unreliable in the sense that we will never we will in in reviews we may start to estimate the true counts you know the current case counts are most definitely and the death counts are most definitely lower than they actually are so there's understatement yeah absolutely so there is a there's a reality in the fact that they're not reliable but that's definitely not the that's not the reason why they're saying they're unreliable right um, they're trying to to put it in the other uh, put it on the other foot. Um, I I think that you know really does again highlight um, this governance the this governance challenge. I think also the reality is is there are going to be significantly higher global numbers in other countries that aren't being uh, reported accurately. Um, and you know this is not a reason to pull your numbers and not not to be upfront with them and, and showing them um, the the fact that we don't actually know the the numbers occurring say in Russia where we have over 240,000 cases um, and it's likely to be significantly higher is not rationale for the US or the UK to not be accurately reporting. You know when China changed its case definitions of how it was counting um, to confirm cases there was complete outcry Um, Mm. and yet the same we know that the same things happening appears to be happening around the world now as governments try to um, you know, it, it's definitely not because they're believing in the public health and the epidemiology and they're saying that the numbers are too low that they're making these arguments. Um, the second path that I think is particularly concerning, and I think this is something that has been worrying people well before the COVID-19 pandemic, um, 
But the COVID-19 pandemic, just as we've seen throughout history, um, public health crises are opportunities for authoritarian governments to try and legitimise either imposing emergency laws you know, we can talk a little bit about some of the laws that have been put uh, put through in Australia in the last little while. Um, huh. But also, you know, and, and Hungary, for example, what we've seen occurring in Hungary, but also justifying delaying elections. We had the Supreme Court here in the US um, uh, make a statement that they weren't saying that uh, country that states couldn't move to postal votes or alternate voting uh, to protect public health, but um, what we are seeing is hesitation from different states and electoral authorities to you know, make provision for people to be able to vote in the primaries, but also then potentially the, the national election in a way that is safe. You know, when we get to November, that's kind of when we're estimating we're moving into our second wave period um, here in the US. Um, and at least, you know, influenza. But there would be this, uh, there is a real concern that this pandemic will be used as justification to not necessarily overtly delay an election. I mean, that's certainly a possibility uh, in terms of what's being mooted, whether it's legally wouldn't be object to challenge is another question. But, you know, this is this is a country where we've seen minorities, you know, being actively disenfranchised, whether it be through um, voting limitations such as voting ID laws um, or through gerrymandering. And so it, it's... Um, it's not too far uh, a step along from that to uh, have that you know people cannot vote in person or that they um, they cannot postal vote or there aren't arrangements made for um, members of for range of members of society including vulnerable populations like elderly populations let alone um, also minority populations that there um, you know that there would be a disproportionate risk on certain minority populations as well to go vote. So there is a, it is it is foreseeable that um, that the impact of this this outbreak on the election will be both, you know, direct but also indirect through, through um, how the government chooses, to, different state governments choose to handle this and that's not necessarily going to be with the best intentions. Can I ask you finally about the Federation? I mean, there's been a, a fair bit of talk in Australia about how the Federation has suddenly worked, you mm. know, after years of, of sort of dysfunction that uh, state and federal governments have worked hand in glove and that this is uh, very much uh, the, the key to Australia's, um, you know, successful handling of the virus so far. How's the Federation worked in the US? In many respects, the Federation in the US is set up for the states to be the primary public health authorities um, within a state, um, unless there is that risk of interstate spread or, or foreign, like into the US spread, it, it is within the ambit of state governments. And so in many respects, it's actually working how it was intended. I mean, you know, Australia's Federation is it was inspired by the same sort of enumerated powers, you know, distribution as the as the as the US. So um you know, I sit here in New York and one of the reasons I didn't leave New York for, say, D.C., where, you know, Georgetown is, is because the the New York State and the New York City very proactively um, came on board and took leadership in the crisis, um, which is not necessarily an option in, in Washington, D.C. Um, so 
in many respects, this has operated exactly how it's intended. Where the failure of federalism has occurred here is the power of the federal government to um, to access and guarantee supply, whether it be through the Defence Production Act, whether it be through import from, from overseas, um, and to coordinate the distribution of goods like PPE, uh, personal protective equipment or ventilators or, um, or other sort of essential services that could be redistributed from the national level. Um, the failure of the federal government to do that, the test, test kits are a perfect example, um, have been uh, really crippling. And so whilst the state governments have really sort of, you know, as a general rule, taken the powers, used the powers that are available to them, um, that failure of federal leadership has has had those direct impacts. It also has had an impact where you have state governors that um, have chosen to take a science denialism approach to the outbreak and create this straw man argument of the you know this this false dichotomy between public health and the economy and putting up the economy as being somehow devoid of engagement with with protecting public health um, and that has been facilitated and fl- and in I guess inspired in many respects by the federal government. Um, so that's I don't necessarily that's necessarily a, a failure of federalism or just a, a reflection of of the um, the partisanship that that has emerged or I guess not necessarily partisanship but um, ideologies that have emerged and how they're playing out um, at the same time. Perhaps it just shows the vulnerability of federalism. Really, that uh, it, it's it, you know you can have all the machinery there, but but you have to have the goodwill of. Uh, of government, state, and federal for it to actually work, they need to actually want to cooperate with each other as well as having the you know the legal delineations for that to occur. Yeah. So, for example, in Australia, when we had the, all the revisions to the Biosecurity Act and the different National Health Security Acts back in in two thousand seven, the Biosecurity Act in twenty fifteen, um, post uh, two thousand seven, the COAG came together and signed a National Health Security Agreement. That was an agreement of of what would occur, what what were the dynamics between state and federal authorities if we did have a a, an emerging infectious disease health threat like this, um, and that's something the US doesn't have. I mean, it, it has country, it has through the CDC sort of a, an implied agreement that occurs, but the way the CDC has been taken out of this response deliberately by the administration because they are an evidence based public health driven institution has meant that any implied or existing agreements that we have between states and federal government for cooperation have fallen away. Um, and so, you know, the fact that Australia has that sort of process in place has, has definitely played out. And what we've seen is these regional blocks emerge in the US. So like the, the Northeast Corridor. So, um, you know, states up in the Northeast have all sort of joined together to create sort of this sort of negotiating and distribution, um, uh, sort of mini federal. Uh, unit. We've had it same out in, in Western, different parts of the country have these sort of mini uh, sort of uh, cooperation agreements. So when uh, Connecticut wants to reopen, you know, that's going to be in consultation with New York, um, with Massachusetts, with countries, uh, sorry, with states in the surrounding area. So we've kind of seen this, um, it, it playing out in a sort of sub-national, um, regional way, which is which is very interesting from a federalism perspective. Yes, very interesting indeed. Alex, thanks so much for joining us on Democracy Sausage Extra. It's been excellent hearing, uh, getting your expertise on, on, on public health law and on the politics of all of this, as well as the epidemiology and uh, really useful for us. Uh, you're uh, in a very interesting part of the world where 
where the, that situation is more extreme than anywhere else. And so uh, obviously stay safe uh, and we look forward to talking to you again at some stage. It would be, be lovely to come back. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Alex. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.